Okay, here we are with another Who's Your Mob podcast, and this is a long-awaited one. I get to have a bit of a chat with Linda Barwick. She has been travelling around the country for the last few decades, doing some work with different communities and uh, helping them record some of their songs and and help, I guess, document their culture and, and be able to also find a way and not only way but the right way to be able to present this so that people can have a bit more of an understanding and respect of Aboriginal culture. So her being a non-Aboriginal person having such a connection with Aboriginal culture I thought you know this would be quite interesting and I think it's something that people might be interested in. There's not greatest deal of trust from some people about non-Aboriginal people coming into Aboriginal communities because of past exploitation and such, but I believe Linda has a has a very good heart and her trust within communities and her decades of experience is testament to that. So, yeah, we talk about a lot of different things here and uh, it was a fascinating chat underneath the tree. We were over in Perth for a musicology conference and uh, that's where I got to stop her. So this is, I guess, while there weren't any other things worth checking out, at least from our perspective, we yeah, sat down underneath the tree. You can hear the wind blowing in the trees. You can hear a bit of a crow in the background and some other delegates walking around and interrupting our conversation here and there which I was well I I think I edited them all out but anyway yeah this is a nice way to spend an afternoon and and hopefully you get to enjoy this conversation as well here she is Linda Barwick like a lot of people in Australia I've got a very very mixed background (laughs) Um, on my dad's side a lot of convicts. I think the first one came out 1790 or something like that. Crawled off the Royal Admiral. That was the, the one of those ships that everybody nearly died on the way across. Yeah, right. Yeah, really bad. Um, I think there's about 14 of them, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> Convicts back there on Dad's side. Uh, and um, on Mum's side, uh, Mum's mother was adopted. We only found out who her mob was yeah, very recently. Yeah, wow, okay. Um, how, how did you guys find out? Uh, well, you know, stuff coming online, doing those, yep. you know, web searches and stuff like that. Okay. Yeah, eventually, you know, Mum found her first cousin and, you know, was able to, you know, after more than a hundred years of being separated, those two families kind of got back together so yeah so (laughs) there's been a bit of that kind of thing um my yeah so who's my mob uh we've always traveled around a lot interesting that one of one of my lines is actually romany so (laughs) there's a bit of um you know traveling in there yeah yeah (laughs) uh my dad was a teacher and so we we moved every two or three years um, and um, yeah, the other thing I guess about 
where my cultural roots are is my family was always really strong like we were moving around but we you know we were really had some real principles about how we would interact with people we were really cultural outsiders most places we went but you know we sort of found ways of you know yeah being respectful with um with people in different places and things yeah um for example well i don't know whether see what you think you can cut this out if you want to yeah but um one of the things about my family was that um, we were brought up as atheists mm -hmm. and in 1954 when i was born 0.3 percent of the australian population identified yeah. as atheists well, okay. right <laughs> and uh, we were living in little country towns where you were either catholic or protestant and if you didn't go to church you didn't fit in yep. yeah so um you know sometimes we you know everybody else is going off having scripture classes and we were down the, just sent off down into the yard with other kids from minority backgrounds. Okay. Uh, so, yeah. you know, so that was, um, you know, a, sort of an interesting experience for me, sort of growing up, mm. being kind of, I mean, it's not, it's not really like being bicultural, but it's, it's certainly growing up with an, with a sort of sense of finding your place in the world and yeah. being able to make common connections with people. Yeah, I, yeah, it's, yeah, it's interesting. I consider myself to be a relatively staunch atheist, mm -hmm. but then I wonder if I was in a place that was, you know, quite strictly religious, how much I could be inclined to, you know, just fake it and, you know, like yeah. just, just go along, you know, for, for the social and, and do what was, um, yeah, I guess necessary to 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 blend in, yeah. and uh, I guess perhaps maybe without you know some people like like your parents and yourself being a bit more you know staunch about it that uh, it wouldn't have been so easy for you know people these days to be able to you know say that they don't believe or not partake and be able to think for themselves. Well, one of the things that went along with that was. Um, you know, we were, it was almost like because everybody knew we weren't Christian, yeah. we were kind of brought up to believe, to, to act in a very moral, thoughtful, respectful way. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't that we were anti-Christian yeah. or anti-anything else, but it was almost like we had a responsibility to show that to have good values, you didn't need to be Christian. <laughs> yeah, 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 true. So that was so, part of it. Yeah. Well, how yeah. did they know? Like, well, because we didn't go to scripture classes. Okay, but, but the rest of the town and oh, the rest, the rest of, of the school. town knew. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I got booted out of piano classes really? by the nuns, who were the only people who taught. Wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, but you actually got in. So you were in the in the class for a while, and then they found out that. Well, it was more, atheist. no, no, yeah, I guess it was something along those lines, yeah. <laughs> wow. It's something along those lines. It was, it, it, it was more complicated than that, but yeah, it was, like, it, the, we're talking about very small towns, right? Okay. Small country towns. Like, what yeah. kind of population? You know, 2,000, something like that. Yeah. What part of the country? Oh, just uh, all, right. all Right, so around. mainly in New South Wales. Yep. So, I could give you a list of the towns if you're interested. Uh, 
Oh, no. <laughs> might be interesting because, yeah. like, my, my um, the cultural heart of my family is in a town of 2,000 people, uh-huh. uh, which okay. is uh, Walgett. Ah, right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, um, my dad was a school teacher, his dad was a school teacher, so he'd had a similar kind of life. Yeah. And I always said to my, that, you know, when I had kids, I wasn't going to drag them around the country. I went to 16 different schools. Wow. My kids. <laughs> Unfortunately for them, have had a similar experience because I ended up moving around quite a bit as well. Yeah. You know, I think I've lived in something like, you know, 40 different houses in my life. Okay. I've added it up once. It's probably, the last few years I've I've been a lot more in the same place, but I've got that kind of, you know, um, used to be that, you know, once I've been in a place for two years, I say, what's next, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Okay. <laughs> well, I guess it's led you to you know some quite interesting places and interesting work. Yeah, yeah, and also lots of lots of you know social networks, I suppose. Like, um, you know, just coming down to well, so I grew up and you know started going to school would have been late fifties, early early sixties, and in those days, um, you know, little country towns in New South Wales, Dungog, Nara. Huskisson, I lived for a yep. while. Um, Berry. So we were Portland. My, all my siblings were born in Portland. I okay. was actually born in Sydney. Um, and then we lived in Sydney for a little while. And you know, then we ended up all moving to South Australia when I was fourteen. So yep. I went from living in these sort of you know pretty straight laced, very Anglo country towns, feeling completely like an outsider, to going to this incredible moving into this incredible multicultural area in Adelaide. So yeah, right. moved into the middle of a, of a village of people from Le Marche in Italy. And like literally into the middle, like all our neighbors were kind of, a lot of our neighbors were, were related. Mm-hmm. And that, cause they'd come over sort of chain migration sort of thing. And so, um, you know, I just loved it because like I wasn't the only, Kind of cultural outsider in the group. Mm. So I guess, you know, when you say who's my mob, I feel like um, I don't have one answer, but I feel like, you know, the thing is that you find your mob, mm-hmm. you find the people that you gel with and in, in the, all the diversity that there is around the place. Yep. So, you know, those sort of, you know, really, to me, those kind of you know, relationships are really, really important. Yep. Yeah. And then how did you come to uh, engage with the Aboriginal community? What, what was your first um, uh, yeah, Aboriginal mob that you worked with or spent time with? Well, I guess, you know, looking back to my childhood, when I was seven, my best friend at school was called Gloria. don't remember what her surname was. This was when I was going to Nara East Primary School. So Gloria, if you're out there, I'd love to get in touch with you. I remember you very fondly. <laughs> um, then, uh, then you know, other places I lived. You know, looking back, you know, quite a few of the kids that I went to school with were Aboriginal. But those days, you know, people kind of didn't really proclaim themselves to be such. Okay. In New South Wales, yeah, especially in little. Close-minded, 
country towns. Yeah. Mm. Um, but but I guess mob coming from uh, what was uh, it like Wurridgee Lane, yeah. uh, like fr yeah. from missions that they probably couldn't avoid. Yeah. yeah. Being seen as Aboriginal, so like yeah. people living in the towns yeah, were could, could kind of pass as. Yeah. I know you hear stories yeah. about people saying yeah. that they're Sri Lankan or uh, yeah. I know like yeah. Malaysian. Or well, I think Gloria came from from some you know community somewhere mm. close to Nara. I remember she had to get on a bus every day, yeah. so she could never come and play at my house, but you know, we were very close at school. Yeah. Um, but my other sort of friends and classmates in other places, um, yeah, I mean, it sort of wasn't really part of the conversation, I guess, to know that. But looking back, I can say, yeah, definitely. Mm. <laughs> and in fact, one of my really close friends when I was in Dungog, was from an Aboriginal family. Yep. Um, and uh, yeah, so I had that kind of, you know, when I was growing up. Mm. And again, you know, she was like me, she'd come up from Port Macquarie and I'd kind of just lobbed into town from somewhere else. So you know how you make friends with the other new kids and yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> have some common cause there. Um, and then when I moved to Adelaide, um, yeah, there was, I guess, the first time I actually kind of studied Aboriginal music was through the Centre for Aboriginal Studies in Music at the University of Adelaide. Okay. Um, so, Kath Ellis was, um, was there at the time. Yeah. I was a postgrad student. Um, I'd actually done my undergraduate um, work in uh, Italian and French because I was doing Italian because I had all these Italian friends. Mm -hmm. And... Um, was in this Italian singing group and I ended up doing my PhD on Italian music but I needed a music supervisor so Kath was the music supervisor and um, at the University of Adelaide I went sort of was in her postgrad class and you know we used to get singing lessons from Bijanjata elders came down and you know, okay. taught us to sing and all that kind of thing. So, so what kind of you were talking about? Uh, early 80s. Okay. Yeah. And uh, it was actually just after that, you know, Erin showed something yesterday from this International Musicological Society meeting in Adelaide. In, oh, right. Yeah, yeah. 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 And uh, so, what was it? Bart Willoughby playing yeah, there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I knew, you know, some of those guys who were in some of those bands and everything. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it was, it was, I wasn't kind of, you know, I wasn't there to study Aboriginal music, but I was part of this postgraduate group. I was actually doing my postgrad on something else, mm. and but I sort of, you know, took part in all the activities and got to know people and things. Yeah, yeah. Um, but meanwhile, yeah, I mean, in Adelaide, there's lots of Aboriginal families too, so mm. you know, had friends and relatives and things involved yep. there. Um, and um, and then when uh, eventually Kath left Adelaide and went and worked at UNE in Armada and she uh, needed a research assistant for a grant application that she got. So that's how I came to, you know, I didn't actually intend to work in this area. Yeah, right. Okay. It kind of happened to me. Yeah, wild. <laughs> and um, yeah, and um, so things have just really grown from there. Uh, and then I guess by the 1990, you know, late 80s, early 90s, there was all land rights stuff going on and language and culture. There was this real need for people to help with 
documenting stuff like that. So yep. I uh, worked with my husband Alan Marrett and and some linguists and so on on um, some land claims, doing documentation reports for land claims and native title and yep. stuff like that. And um, and yeah, it's just like you know, once you start doing that kind of thing, people say, "Hey, we want you to come over here and record our songs," and you know, yeah, yeah. kind of took off from there. So, so did yeah. you have more of a background in uh, in music as, yeah. as such, or or like yeah. recording, or? Yeah. So my original background was actually, yeah. Well, I'm I'm one of these people that is very enthusiastic about lots of things, and. I could never decide what I wanted to do. So I did music um, sort of informally uh, all my life, but I didn't actually formally study, you know, music until I was a postgrad student. So, you know, and I did kind of music theory classes and stuff like that, but, you know, I'd been, you know, I'd learned a bit of piano from the nuns till they kicked me out. Um, I'd, uh, you know, played in bands and been part of this tongue singing group and, you know, kind of done all that kind of stuff and then working with Kath got into sort of doing more serious kind of detailed documentation of music and stuff and yeah got engaged more at an intellectual level I suppose yeah. at that stage. Yeah. So were you able to learn certain well I guess not yeah. only the, the technicalities yeah. of using yeah. a recorder but but yeah. then how to engage with communities oh, and such yeah. Like well, I mean, that's really what the Centre for Aboriginal Studies in Music was all about. Mm. I mean, you've probably talked to other people involved with it, I'd, I'd hope. But if you haven't, yeah. I've got some names you could chase up. Sure. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so this was... Um, Might see you dinner. Cool. <laughs> so, yeah, so part of the thing was that there was a, a salary... A, senior lectureship was established at the University of Adelaide to bring down people from Pitlands to come and teach yeah. um, us dumb <laughs> uni students how to behave, okay. learning how to sing, yep. uh, all that kind of thing, yeah. So that was that was really, you know, wonderful experience yep. and um, something that stayed with me all my life. I learnt Bijanjata language. I did a correspondence course in Bijanjata. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I can't speak it now, but I can actually understand it, you know, when Inu was, mm. was talking, you know, I can sort of get the gist of what's what's happening. Cause that, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so so that's kind of how I got into it. Okay. And yeah, so for, from that, um, yeah, you you went to a whole lot of uh, different parts of the country. Was, yeah. uh, did you uh, did, did it feel like a choice as to okay you know, I, I want to learn about you know Wonga or I, I want to you know learn about um, I don't know, was, this or that yeah. and, uh, or it, it just came to you it, well yeah I mean it, it wasn't so much that I'd say right I want to go here because I haven't been here before or anything like that it, it wasn't anything like that I mean I've ended up working in a lot of different communities as you might have seen. Um, but it's been, you know, very much, I guess, you know, they say songs sort of link things up and, you know, you kind of make relationships through songs. And, you know, I think especially when I started getting involved with sort of community music projects, like I was, I happened to be passing through Tennant Creek in 
1996, I think it was, um, on, on my way to somewhere else with a tape recorder. <laughs> and the um, I'd sort of organised my trip to this other place I was going mm. through the Papadalapakari Language and Culture Centre in Tennant Creek. And they said, they had these um, women there who said, hey, we want to record our songs. So they said, come on, get in the car, we're going out to the dam. And so, Wild. so we went out to the dam, I recorded their songs and they wanted to make a, a cassette out of it. And then at the time, it, you know, that was right at the time when cassettes were turning into CDs. And so we ended up doing this really fancy CD that was published with, um, eventually published with Festival Records. Okay. Um, in 2000. What kind of songs? Uh, well, Yaolyu Munga Munga songs. So Munga Munga songs are like Waramunga women's songs, but yep. they're sort of okay to be heard publicly. Yep. And um, so they really wanted to make CDs because they wanted to get the younger generations involved. They thought they were, you know, losing interest in songs. So they thought if they put yep. them on a CD, you know, the, they, the, the it looked really great. Yep. Um, that the young kids would would be more engaged and want to learn more, which was, I mean, this, I, I didn't know this to start off with, right? I just kind of got dragged in. Yep. <laughs> and, uh, but over time, I kind of developed a really, really close relationship through, the, through those songs I recorded. Mm. And it was funny because I was, I was actually um, living in Hong Kong at the time and I was, you know, backing up my recordings. Afterwards, I was like, oh, these songs are so great. They're so catchy, you know, and they just got into my head. Mm. And then, um, you know, we went through quite a lengthy time then where, you know, negotiating about, well, you know, do you want to put stuff, what stories do you want to put with the songs on the CD and all that kind of thing. And we had quite a long discussion about that. So, yeah. And uh, it, took, it took years, but yeah, right. it, okay. it was brilliant and yeah just just from that yeah. little um you know yeah. chance encounter that yeah. uh, you had it like this <laughs> lengthy um yeah. project from it yeah yeah and and that sort of has led to you know lifelong in, you know friendships and engagement with uh, people there so mm. um you know in fact my very good friend passed away last year but um you know it's been a very i haven't been back for quite a while that's one of the things that makes it hard is Hard, hard when you kind of can't get your act together. You're too busy, modern life. Mm. Do as much travelling as you used to do. So something like mm. that where you're recording for a mm. publication. Yeah. Um, yeah, what, what's the process as to... I guess you're not necessarily going into a recording studio and, no, and then no. uh, you probably, you know, got, you know, portable equipment yeah. and... And then is there a, you know, like a, you, you do a, a bunch of takes and you have to choose the right one or do you just hit record and let, let it happen? Well, yeah, so, so, you know, I mean, this is, this is really part, I suppose, of the kind of academic training is, you know, I don't want to kind of insert myself in there and say, you know, we're going to do it this way and that way. I kind of let events unfold as they will. You know, this is something Kath Ellis taught me. You turn the recorder on and you don't turn it off mm. yeah, until right. the end of your tape or whatever, right? Because you never know. And it, it kind of stops people having to think about the recording and, you know, every now and then you have to turn it over. 
whatever, you know, yeah. people will, you know, in this case, that's what, you know, the whole point of it was they wanted to get this stuff down on tape. So, yep. you know, and, and it was, a, you know, really wonderful um, product. I think everybody feels really proud about and, you know, it's still selling like hotcakes. Oh, believe. okay. Yeah, through well, the Language and Culture Centre. What's it called? <laughs> it's called Yaulu Mungamunga. Okay. Songs from, uh, I think it's called Waramungu Dream, Women's Dreaming Songs from yeah. uh, Central Australia. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. It was put out through festival records. And I think part of the impetus for it was um, the, um, was the, you know, the, the Sydney Olympics were coming up and they wanted to have some, you know, Aboriginal music stuff for international visitors. That was what, yeah. from festival records point of view. Okay. Um, but from from our point of view, it was actually really much more about the community process and, and so on. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it, it's quite interesting. I th think in the last session they were talking about how uh, they were surprised that uh, I can't think of uh, which mob they were referring to, but how they were surprised how open they were to having their songs heard when they, some people have this you know, idea that, you know, if it's an Aboriginal traditional song, then it's got to be, you know, closed and, and yeah. kept secret and sacred and, mm. and not to be shared, you know, mm. let alone, uh, you know, on festival records for the Olympics. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, is there something in particular about the Watamungu mob yeah. that, yeah, I guess you've yeah. got that recording and then yeah. uh, more recently the one with um, Warren H. Williams yeah. that uh, is there something about the, you know, the culture that makes yeah. them more open and well, I think, wanting to you share? Warramunga mob are, are so used to, to uh, you know, dealing with outsiders. I mean, they're at the crossroads of, you know, there's five ways there. Um, yeah. You know, come, people coming in from Queensland, Gulf Country, Top End, Central Australia, out west, you know, I mean, they're kind of just really in, uh, I think it would always have been a very pivotal position. Of course, you know, Stuart Highway, Telegraph Line, there was a telegraph station there, you know, so so it, there's a very long history of kind of, I guess, engagement with, with outsiders and kind of, you know, being proud of culture and, yeah. and, and wanting to, you know, I mean, obviously strategically sharing it, not not sharing everything, but mm. you know the things that sort of had particular reasons for wanting to do it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think that's something that, as a general principle, uh, you know, if I'm doing a community music project, I would never set out to record anything that was in any way um, problematic mm. to put on tape because as soon as you put something on tape then you kind of you know it takes on a life of its own yeah and, and so yeah. Th does there need to be like a long consultational yeah. process yeah. where you yeah. inform them about of the course. outcomes yeah and yeah yeah and so you know basically I've you know mainly yeah I mean it would never be my intention to sort of just go in and record stuff for the sake of recording stuff. It's it's like you're recording stuff for a reason. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of the stuff that I've done is actually, you know, right from, especially with the land rights and native title things, is kind of helping people to recuperate and reclaim 
sort of their own performance history through match, you know, bringing uh, Covel recordings into circulation and, yep. you know, empowering people to kind of manage it themselves locally and stuff like that. So, so you know, some of the performances kind of come out of that encounter with uh, Covel things as well. Mm. Um, in, just in terms of recording, the approach to recording things, like I said, I, you know, certainly never set out to record things that people didn't want to have recorded. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so was and this the same, uh, like, have you kept the same style as what, say, Catherine Ellis would have had yeah. back in the 60s? Yeah, so I think that was pretty much... Uh, uh, well, I think when she started out, you know, there was much less familiarity, not just with the Aboriginal people she was dealing with, various areas like she you know she traveled all over the place too um, but also like a familiarity with researchers themselves because that portable sound recording technology was was only you know quite new you know it's really only post-war World War Two that there was kind of portable stuff that you could, yeah. you know really rely on I mean there were other there were wire recorders there were sort of really big heavy tape recorders that mm. you could you could, um, you know, or platter recorders and things like that. So that there are, you know, there's a history of sound recordings that goes back to sort of late into 1890s. But in terms of kind of having portable stuff that wasn't too intrusive, etc., it wasn't really till the 1950s and 60s that that was really kind of generally available. And um, so I think that a lot of early pe people making those recordings didn't necessarily know what would be the afterlife of their recordings either. Yeah, right. And so, um, and that includes, you know, like everybody's involved with making a recording, right? Um, so, um, yeah, so, so there are some, certain sort of things that, you know, as a, as an ethnomusicologist, you know, you sort of trained that you're not supposed to kind of influence what's happening too much and you know obviously negotiating the how what's happening but it's supposed to be on the terms of the people that you're working with what gets recorded what doesn't all that kind of thing mm. um, and I think Kath herself ended up recording a lot of women's material that was restricted um, and m m partly because I think there was more demand for that then mm. by people. Oh, but by the communities yeah. themselves, okay. Um, but, you know, probably partly because, you know, nobody was really thinking so much about that future legacy yeah, side right. of it. Yeah. Right? Um, so and so that that's sitting in mm. IATSIS mm. at the moment, yeah. uh, for, the, for mm. those, um, uh, you know, the, those tapes mm. and what, whatever's been digitised, mm. Uh, now for people to understand what's restricted and what's not, mm. uh, is that all um, more or less been uh, worked out uh, since? Or well, is that still a yeah, process? Yeah, so, I mean, I think it's obviously still in process and, you know, things things that might have been okay, you know, maybe they're not okay for a while, maybe you know, yeah. things change as well. Um, but it's like, you know, as a to the extent that, you know, what I do has to have publishable outcomes as, to, you know, part of the, the conditions of getting 
getting the grants, then I'm definitely not going to be sort of saying, well, I'm going to go and record all this stuff that I'm never going to be able to publish. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so yeah. There's that as well. But, you know, really, it's to me, it's... Um, it, it, I mean, one of the things that I think is really clear is that there have always been public genres, like what Miff and Clint were talking mm. about, that sort of, you know, sharing corroboree song that anybody can sing that's kind of come come around. Yeah. I mean, those things are just as important a part of history yeah. as the things that are, you know, not suitable for, yeah. for public uh, sharing. And yeah. so, you know, and, and, and I think a lot of people have had this idea that, that you know, um, that it's just too, too dangerous to listen to, 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 to kind of engage because of this idea that there's, you know, secret, sacred stuff and you don't want to offend and that kind of mm. thing. And, I mean, that's definitely a concern that, that we all have to deal with, especially with older recordings. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, but you know there are ways that you can manage that, but it, it's got to depend on a relationship of trust as well. So yeah, you know, I mean, if like for example, if someone comes to me and says, "Look, I know my grandmother recorded these songs, and I just you know would really like to know what's there," then we can, you know, can you help me find them or something like yeah, that? Yeah. Then oh, of course I would. Um, and if somebody came to me and said, "Look," You know, I really want to record these songs, but I don't want them to be shared. Then that's something that I, of course, would do. Mm. But that's not what I'm going to write about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, is there is there a sense of there being a? Um, oh, wait, wait, we'll just say, yeah. yep, <laughs> super. I'll see you at dinner. Yep, cool. Yeah. So, is there a sense that? you could almost take it for granted that people who know clothes, song, uh, uh, clothes songs actually would know not to sing it in such a context or do yeah. you kind of have to be extra careful and, and like just double check and cover your well, bases that way? Um, well, of course. Yeah, I mean... Well, both. Mm. <laughs> I mean, you never want. You always want to cover your bases, right? Mm. But I think um, it's a matter of, you know, it's a lifelong training that people who hold those songs mm. have, yep. and you know, their judgment is to be absolutely respected and part of what they, you know. I mean, it's a face-to-face -face thing. Yeah. So, yeah. so what are the consequences like is it of um of say you know getting something wrong like uh, someone hearing a, a clothes song mm. in, in another part of the country or 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 someone you know even within the community hearing a song that they might not necessarily have permissions for mm. um it, it, the consequences say um I, I guess purely you know spiritual or is there is this well. Well, I'm not sure what purely spiritual is. Yeah. Um, well, I don't have personal experience of this, um, but I, you know, I know that people are anxious, can be anxious about that kind of thing happening, and uh, I think the key to 
dealing with those anxieties is to sort of, you know, just approach things in a very careful way mm. and make sure that it's, things are done in private that need to be done in private. Yep. You know. Um, I don't know very much about the, you know, I'm, I'm not really quite sure what you're coming at mm. there exactly, but um, I think, um, I think it's, it's something that you know needs to be respected, and everybody does need to know it. Even non-Aboriginal people need to know that, because mm. they do. And um, it's it's got to be fundamental that that's that that's a that that's a something that has to be respected. Yeah. But at the same and and if you have a tape and you don't know what's on it, you're going to be, you know, you could be worried that the next thing you're going to hear is something you're not supposed to hear. So, yeah. You know. Um, but that's one of the reasons why I think it's really valuable to kind of, you know, have all those conversations before you turn the tape recorder on, right? Yeah. Uh, and once you have got a recording to make sure that you kind of, you know, that the people who are involved with making those decisions own what happens to that recording afterwards, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so. Yeah, I'm trying to understand it. In, if there are parallels in a Western context as yeah. to what you know, secret yeah. knowledge might be. I'm, I'm yeah. sure that you know that there are things yeah. out there that yeah. I, um, you know, oh, I, well, I don't know. About, I, it's, yeah. yeah, sorry. Well, you know, what about you know the algorithms to that Facebook uses, or you know, I mean, it's yeah. it, there are things that are commercial in confidence. I suppose would be. Yeah. One way of thinking about it, I mean, they're the things that enable the whole system to work. Yeah. Part of what makes the whole system work and the power of those songs is that the right people need to manage the power of those songs. Yeah. So it's a, you know, even though, you know, one side of the hand you're talking about money and all sorts of other stuff, but um, it's there are some parallels, I think, in the sense that you're, you're protecting the system that's generating yeah what's what's you know good and valuable for the future i mean probably a lot more good and valuable for the future than the algorithms that protect social media right? mm. um so yeah I, I mean and one of the things that i think has been really great about some of the some of the um really, you know, like the Yalu Munga Munga thing or some of the other record publicly available recordings that I've worked on with people is that, you know, those songs are kind of, you know, willingly shared and they have, um, they have a power to communicate, you know, that's broader than just the sort of local meanings and that's mm. And the, I think the custodians know that, and that's why they're wanting to kind of put stuff out yep. as well. You know, like um, it's a, it's a, it's a sort of big world. There's a lot of, there is a lot of material that isn't secret. You know, it's got to be owned and looked after and respected the same way. But mm. it's like, you know, if you write a song or I write a song, and you know. We've got some sort of lifelong interests in that. It's, um, but you know, we're glad if you know. I don't know. 
um, Beyonce wants to cover it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, I mean, that's a very different kind of context. But, yeah, so, so I think one of the things that's um, really important when you're working with, with anything that's really culturally meaningful is that you kind of just take guidance and um, listen carefully to, to people and yep. music and make sure that you're, you're kind of... I guess Kath also was very aware of you know, what she regarded as some mistakes that she'd made in her early part of her career and, you know, um, not wanting to take the power away from the performers to, to sort of initiate new recordings, if that's what they wanted to do, mm. you know. Like, yeah, yeah. On one occasion, I think she accidentally bought a ceremony that she didn't really intend to do. All right. Because she was wanting to give payment for a performance and... Somehow she ended up buying the whole ceremony. All oh, right. So, yeah. so, um, <laughs> sorry. How does that actually work? You you buy a ceremony, like as far well, as well, it was a sort of travelling trading ceremony, and yeah. so there were certain things that she sort of accidentally did, whereby um, she kind of you know produced the right sort of goods to and distributed them to oh, then okay. have you know then. You know, she went back and said, oh, well, you know, next time she went back, she said, oh, you know, have you done that ceremony again? I said, no, you, you, you know, you've got it now. And so... Wow. She, and okay. Yeah, so I think she did actually manage to get it back in, but it's like that kind of thing can happen. That's a, cult, a, a you know, big example of cultural misunderstanding. Wow. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I had no idea anything like that could exist. So, yeah. so then people would just not perform the ceremony again because they felt that they it's passed been it on passed to the next on. thing yeah so you know how they were talking about one on today where the songs get passed from one group to another i think it was something like that mm. and she'd sort of somehow got into the chain well wow. uh, but um you know i mean it it wasn't like it wasn't a secret sacred kind of thing it yeah was a, but that's an yeah. example. So, so how many years in between, you know, like her, yeah. you know, like recording and then finding out, oh, you, you guys haven't done this? Yeah. Anymore. I'm not sure. I think yeah. it was a couple of years. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it was like 20 years. Yeah, well. <laughs> yeah, I, I had no idea, you know, that yeah. exists. I always assumed that, um, and I guess, you know, for a lot of the case, you know, you have these songs yeah. that, that exist for you know however long to be able to help people navigate around the, yeah. the country and just navigate socially and so I think I think there are you know in that particular area as I understand it you know there are land-based songs that people hold on to forever and there are also these kind of traveling songs that they can sort of they hold for a while and then pass on to the next group along the line yeah so that was one of those ones yeah and it, yeah it is quite interesting because um, you know hearing mm a lot of these, you know, digitising of, of, of mm. songs and stories and people trying to, uh, will go into great lengths to, uh, you know, collect them all. And, mm. you know, they, they might have been in a certain, you know, time mm. and place for, mm. um, uh, you know, for a certain amount of time. I kind of wonder as to, you know, how ephemeral that they might have been traditionally mm. and how, 
I guess the, the reverence that they have now mm. might be uh, you know, possibly even even greater as they you know are this mm. um, uh, this uh, I guess fragile yeah. link to yeah. that that uh, t- yeah. time and place and 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 further back beyond that. Yeah. So I mean, it's it's a Sally Treloyne has done some really deep thinking about this. She'd be a good person to have a conversation with. Mm. Some of, you know, Rona and and Johnny and that mob too. Um, yeah, it's something that I think tends to be, I guess it's an anxiety that, that those of us who are involved with documentation have because, you know, the last thing you want to do is to kill something off by recording it and documenting it. But on the other hand, um, I think that it doesn't, it's some, sometimes, you know, that can be something that is, is you know, valuable and, and, you know, aligns really well. So that's why I think the sort of, you know, establishing those personal connections and that trust and, you know, um, in the encounter is, is, is really important um, mm. so that, you know, you want to say, you know, if you feel like this isn't working for you, then please, you know, feel free, just tell me, I'll just turn it off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, wild. <laughs> and, and, you know, the process of editing that original tape back to what was going to go onto the CD was, you know, took quite a long time, you know, mm. everybody listen, yeah, do we want to put that one on, you know, yep. have we done it enough times, you know, all this kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that sort of, um, I guess that level of curation that goes into a performance as well, you know, you've got to be, respect that um, kind of creative energy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And can I just ask you, uh, just going back a bit to where uh, I guess we were talking about uh, the, the sharing of songs and and how you say, you know, if mm. you know, Beyonce sung yeah. a song, that that would be you know, yeah. amazing, and and there, there was that kind of um, you know that uh, you know, sharing of songs to you know, the, the Olympics, and yeah. and I guess there were a lot of other examples of. Of uh, yeah, traditional song uh, yes. reaching out now. Um, so you co-wrote uh, was it like for the sake of song uh, the, yeah. about the Wonga yeah. tradition? Yeah. yeah. Um, and it was Wonga that they were talking about uh, this morning. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so so they got Wonga in the Kimberley there. Oh, okay. Yeah, but um, well, like, it's like daily West- region. Oh, yeah. Right. So yeah. western top end. Yeah, western Arnhem yeah. land. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of actually it's further. It's, yeah, so Western Arnhem Land is there's some different public song. Okay. Um, so they've got things like Gunborg and um, Manyari, yeah. like what David and Jenny and Rupert were doing. Yeah, um, yeah. So Wonga is similar kind of genre, but it's in a different area. So okay, it's kind yeah, of yeah. southwest of Darwin. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. In that Daly region. There. Okay. And have you met Pi Linda Ford? Who she's some, she's come to a lot of these. She wasn't here this year, but she's that's her country there. Yeah, right. Yeah. And um, so yeah, so Wonga is at the same time people 
have taken Wonga has gone down through proper, you know, Aboriginal law exchange things down into the Kimberley. It's almost more popular down there. Like that book, For the Sake of a Song, that mm. Wonga book, yeah. gets a lot of people interested down there in yeah, the Kimberley. Okay. Yeah. yeah, right. <laughs> so, um, you know, I know various people who sort of say, oh yeah, send me that link for that song. Yeah. <laughs> And so what, what do they do? Do they then yeah. l learn the song and, and be able to sing it and yeah. perform it? Yeah, so, so, yeah, I mean, especially that younger generation, you know, like what Sally and, and, and um, Rona and Johnny were talking about in their presentation with, you know, young people sort of, you know, engaging through recordings as well as through all sorts of other mediums. Yeah. Know? And so I guess with Wonga, because there was a lot of Wonga recorded in the sort of, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, and that's mainly what that book's about, is kind of putting together that story of who the people were, mm. how they all related, um, yep. what the stories are for the different songs and stuff. You know, it took us 20 years to um, put all that Wow, together. okay. <laughs> it's like, um, and it's kind of... Yeah, I guess the main thing about that is that um, that's you're kind of you know the, it involved lots of different languages. So we had help from all the people who knew the languages. Often, um, you know, some of the women who helped us with the language side of things, the women relatives of the singers and stuff like that. Um, um, linguist Liz Ford, who's you know worked. For a long time with us on that. That really came out of some of that land claim work I was talking about before. Mm. So for people being able to prove connections to country through, you know, having performed song and dance on that country for a long time. Yeah, right. That sort of thing. So uh, now what I'm trying to work yeah. out now is uh, you, that there's yeah. that, you know, is yeah. what you speak of and um, so you've got like songs from the Daily River region, and yeah. then so we're talking like yeah. hundreds of kilometres away. Yeah. People in Broome are interested in mm -hmm. in singing and performing these songs, yeah. Yeah, and that's a completely different language. Is yeah, it? completely different language. Right, yeah. But they're sing yeah. they're singing they the yeah. other language, but yeah. would they un necessarily understand? Not that necessarily. They're singing, yeah. I guess, syllables. Yeah. yeah though, uh, yeah, I think the stories sometimes go with the songs as well. So. Um, but it's like Wonga and Lirga, which is the other didgeridoo accompanied public genre that they perform in Daily Region. Um, they've kind of taken on a life of their own mm. in Kimberley. And, okay. Yeah, and uh, you know it was all through exchanges that happened. Yeah. You know through the through stock camps and things like that. I think. Yep. That's what people have told us. That's yeah. interesting because yeah. I, I might. Otherwise, assume that mm. uh, if you're from the Kimberley, you might be more inclined to be, you know, singing the songs from your own. Country. Oh yeah, well they've all got songs from their own country too. Yeah. So so that Junba and um, Balga and stuff that um, Johnny and Co were doing yeah, yeah. that they do with that Junba project. I mean that's proper. That's their song from their their own country there. Yeah yeah. But even some of those, they get sort of passed around because they've got this kind of cultural exchange thing right round yep. in that group. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's a, so Wonga has kind of got in, got in there and it's really popular. 
I mean, Wonga, people, a lot of people have told us Wonga's like rock and roll. Yeah. yeah. So, so what makes it rock and roll? What, what, can you pinpoint you musically? You can dance to it, okay. right? It's yeah. great to dance to. Absolutely And, and, and it involves uh, didgeridoo? Uh, yeah, it's, yeah. yeah. Um, it's didgeridoo and clap sticks and... And voice. Yeah. Yeah. And there's voice just something and about the, yeah. the rhythm Have you the listened pulse. to it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've actually got the, yeah. like, the whole set of oh, right, right. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, I mean, they, have you danced to them? They're great to dance to, yeah. I'll, I'll give it a go. <laughs> Alright, I'll, I'll put it on. I think I just need the right speakers. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, so they're dance songs. Yeah. Okay. And, um, and that's I think that's part of what makes them like rock and roll but the other thing that's like rock and roll and that might be like a song that you know I mean when I say that it'd be great if Beyonce sang my song I hope she'd pay me a yeah. shitload of money for it right? yeah yeah uh, she's not gonna for nothing <laughs> um is uh the other thing about rock and roll is you know songs come songs go you know yep. new songs come in okay and um you know, it's like they're, they're kind of more um, of their time, you know, particular time and place sort yep. of thing. Okay, so, so there's that and yeah. then I'm just trying to understand what yeah. it might be about, uh, about the, the particular songs or maybe uh, the particular uh, culture of the place that this morning when uh, the, the fellow from uh, West Arnhem Land was talking about mm how in the digitising of the songs, mm -hmm. he was a little bit resentful of the fact of people um, yeah. like singing those songs in, in busking yeah. Yeah. Uh, situations. Yeah, I don't think he was talking about that in the digitising of the songs. I think he, he, I think what he was referring to, look, I, I don't know the exact story, but I think he, what he's referring to is that they've got the songs in the community on a, computer there mm. and maybe people have kind of taken some away and learnt them and then they sing it when yeah. they shouldn't be. Yeah. Okay, as opposed yeah. to Wonga, yeah. which is it's, yeah. it's um, yeah, semi-encouraged. Yeah, yeah, Wonga is different from that point of view. Yeah. yeah. So so Interlatical is definitely like they're dance songs but they're they're more spiritual or sacred. It, it, they're not secret sacred but they're kind of, you know, they're more tied to ceremony. Yeah. I, I shouldn't really say that because Wonga's also tied to ceremony, but it's, um, yeah, you've just got to be careful with, with Wonga. Yeah. With, with, with Manuri, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's not one size fits all. This is why you've got to get to know people. Yeah, yeah, true. <laughs> so yeah. I, I guess every community yeah. ha more or less has yeah. its own closed and open yeah. songs and, yeah. and such. Um, but then, I don't know, can you say that maybe some communities or some parts of the country have a tendency to yeah. be a bit more closed with yeah. their, uh, their, their, their cultural... Uh, well, yeah, I think, I mean, I think where people don't, you know, where people are anxious about whether song, those traditions are going to go on, I think that makes it you know, hard to, you know, people want to kind of hang on to stuff and keep it yeah. very safe and close to them. Yeah. Um, uh, I think, that, you know, I mean, it seems like there, you could say that, you know, the, 
there are differences around Australia as to, you know, there are certain sorts of songs that you would know straight away. We don't need to worry about this from the sound of them, certain things about them like, you know, for example, didgeridoo accompanied songs, they're usually okay to be heard. Yeah, right. So you're not going to be worried about what's the next song on the tape. Mm. Um, whereas in other parts of the country, there's maybe not, it's not so easy to tell one way or the other. Yeah. So you might need to know, get reassured on this tape. It says this is, this is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking about people, you know, choosing what they want to listen to now from recordings. That's yep. what I'm talking about. Okay. Yeah. Um, I think you just always rely on the sort of, you know, senior knowledgeable people in any community to kind of give you guidance about that. Yeah. And, you know, if people don't want to have anything to do with working on music, then they shouldn't, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's only if you, if you, you know, there's some reason that you want to do it, that, that there, there are, you know, some wonderful models that we've been seeing today about, you know, how important some of that old, those old recordings were for, for young people today, they're really, because they're so, you know, there's sort of, I think some of those old recordings have sort of taken on a new life with, with being shared and remixed and, you know, mm. brought out into the world now where there is, as Clint was saying, there's a real hunger for, um, for that sharing of knowledge. You know, one of the things that we found in um, you know, there's visual arts have been shared all over the place, right? Yep. And one of the things that's interesting is to find out that, you know, in the 1950s and 60s, when when there was a real controlling of um, performers because they didn't want people going places they weren't allowed to go, right? Because they were controlled, you know, so-called protected. Mm. Um, you know, in missions and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so they might not let the performers travel, but they'd let the paintings travel, right? So yeah. you can see that in some of these early records that, um, you know, performers might have wanted to actually be out there, you know, and, and some of them, of course, did a bit later on in the 70s. There's this big explosion of people like Jolly Wawonga going to, you know, perform here, there and everywhere, sort of Paris connection and all that kind of thing, you know, that could have been happening earlier, but it wasn't possible because of this kind of really horrible regime of, of the so-called assimilation period. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's understandable that people who've grown up in that time kind of, you know, and maybe especially people who've kind of you know been prevented from having access to language and culture and things because their parents are trying to protect them or because they've been taken away and put down somewhere else or whatever mm. I think it's really understandable that people like that um, might feel that they don't want to be sharing things um, and that's you know, absolutely respect that yeah all right, just skipping back on to, say, like I said, mention yeah. of the didgeridoo. Yeah. Um, traditionally, so you know, before white people got here, mm. how far did it extend across the mm. country? Well, look, I wasn't alive. 
Yeah. I'm not sure, but this is what I'm told, and this is what the researchers tell you. It's up in the top end. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's some, including Cape York, top end. Um, I think there's some pretty old sites that rock art and stuff that shows it went over into Kimberley's as well. Okay. Um, and uh, so, yeah, that's, of course, didgeridoos, of course, are made of wood, which doesn't last as long as some, you know, the stone instruments or whatever. Um, so there's that. You know, the archaeological record isn't going to tell you much. Yeah, yeah. 65,000 years ago, people might have been using didgeridoos then, but we don't really know. But it seems like, um, from what I understand, research suggests that it kind of came in sometime in the, you know, recent thousands of years rather than yeah, yeah. that long ago. Okay. So. Yeah, because I'm, yeah, I'm just trying to understand, because say, uh, you know, going down to Tennant Creek and the Watermongo mm. mob. Yeah. So this is like, you know, a thousand yeah. Yeah. Like, k's south of Darwin. Yeah. And, um, yeah, yeah. You probably I never heard did you yeah. do that. Yeah. And, you know, well, there's various stories. If you're interested, there's um, a nice story in um, Debbie Rose's book, Dingo Made Us Human, Makes Us Human, um, which is a story from Dagaragu about, you know, people being able to hear didgeridoo from there, but from one direction but not the other. So it's like those transition points, it's like there's sharing, they'll bring some of those didgeridoo things down that far with cultural exchange. But um, of course, cultural exchange these days goes over much, much, much bigger areas. So there's been lots of cultural exchange now with, you know, people from Tasmania and people from Gapuiwak or whatever, you know, so um, there's new trade networks now. So mm. just because it's kind of, you know, didgeridoo wasn't, wasn't being performed in Tennant Creek in recent history doesn't mean it couldn't be now if people mm. agreed about it. You know. Yeah. Yeah, it is, it is quite interesting. Um, every now and then a debate pops up about mm. whether or not women mm. should play and I guess you know, taking mm. my my cues mm. from a, a video that I mm. saw, um, was it Jalu Guru Wee mm. yeah. talking about it, and mm. I guess he's supposed to be what the custodian of the mm. Yidaki? Yeah. Uh, well, that's that's what they call it in yeah. Eastern Arnhem Land. Yeah. And then um, I'm just uh, you know trying to figure out um, as to you know how much, uh, say, people from the the, the south could be somewhat of an authority uh, mm. beyond, say, like the, their own community as to what mm. one can and can't yeah. do if, if mm. uh, you know, someone like Jalu was mm. to, um, you know, give his you know, blessing to, to uh, not, not mm. only let women, but te teach women yeah. how to play. Well, well that, that yeah. not uh, well, Balando. Yeah. Uh, well, you you might know. Or, I wrote an article about this in okay. 1998. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. No, yeah, you didn't know that. No, okay. I, I didn't. So there's a, there's a book that's called From um, the Didgeridoo from Arnhem Land to Internet that's edited by Carl Neuenfeld, who was also at this conference. Okay. He's a great, great guy. Um, anyway, uh, so the thing is, 
that didgeridoo, of course, is belong. You know, it belongs to a lot of different groups, and each group's got its boss for their own mm -hmm. stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, in northeast Arnhem Land, it's called one name, and in Western Ireland, it's called another name, and the daily is called another name. Yeah. And uh, south, south, southern Arnhem Land, Glenborg and stuff like that, it's called another name there. Right? Yeah. So, all those people are boss for their own, their own songs. Yeah. And their own, so what they might decide to do. So, one of the things that I did in that, because you know, when I wrote that, was just when there was this huge explosion of new age didgeridoo playing, you know, like massed yep. orchestras of didgeridoos in Seattle, like okay. thousands of people playing at once and things like that. Wow. Um, and there was a lot of stuff about um, sort of didgeridoo and healing and all this kind yep. of stuff. You might have read some of it. And, um, you know, a lot of the people that I knew thought it was pretty funny what, what Bolander were doing with this. Yeah, part. yeah. But, you know, if people, this was, you know, there was quite a bit of evidence that until that time, there hadn't really been a lot of anxiety about. It. Well, women never played didgeridoo in public, but there wasn't a lot of anxiety about women in a lot of communities that I worked in, sort of handling didgeridoos. Some of them painted didgeridoos. And, you know, people like, um, David Blanasi, who was a really important um, didgeridoo player from Beswick, uh, um, you know, he was teaching people, Bolander, men and women, mm -hmm. on occasion, to play didgeridoo without being too worried about it. In This was in the 70s, early 80s. Mm. And then by the time it gets to the 90s, everybody gets really worried about it. Yeah. And so I think. So, so yeah. when you say everyone, uh, is it like anyone primary, like like people yeah. from the, the top yeah. end, or, or more pe people outside of? Uh, you mean everyone gets really worried about it? Yeah. I, I mean, I think ev you know it became a sort of hot topic, and you know the fact remains that if people, in you know I live in Sydney, if people in Sydney don't want me to touch a didgeridoo, I'm not going to touch a didgeridoo, right? Yeah. So, it's it's that kind of. Um, you know, and they might be saying that because that's, you know, they've been gone and done a didgeridoo workshop with Jalu and that's what he's told them or whatever, you know. So yeah, but, 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 <laughs> but, but, but what about if they're just making these yeah. rules up out of thin air? So, like, so say, if, yeah. say if, you know, if you've learned how to play yeah. you know, didgeridoo from David Blanasi yeah. and then, you know, you're, you're playing you know, did you do and just going about your business and then all of a sudden someone from Sydney says oh you, you can't play the did you do yeah. like well you know I'd be careful about where I played it yeah <laughs> right um, but, but, but but then who, who, yeah. who are they to be yeah well I mean I do think it's I mean well if you read my article basically what my article is saying uh, incidentally you know this article uh, I've had all sorts of people quoting me and misquoting me from that article, so you know I probably will want to have, make sure that I hadn't said anything stupid. 
because it is quite a controversial thing. Not so much now as it was like 10 years ago. Um, You know, I had people ringing me up when, you remember Nicole Kidman went on a Dutch TV show, somebody gave her a didgeridoo and there was this big explosion of, you know, stuff in the news for about two days in 2005 or something, you know. Mm. Uh, I was pursued by international media (laughs) to give comment on this and I refused because I just didn't think it was appropriate for me to be kind of firing up this debate. Yeah. But, okay, so what I said in my article was something along the lines of a lot of people... Bullanders, you know, non-Aboriginal people. The only thing they know about Aboriginal music is that there's sacred secret stuff. And so they kind of say, oh, maybe didgeridoos are sacred secret. And maybe we should be being really careful about it. And we know there are gender taboos and maybe this is what it's all about. And I think it kind of you know, probably started off from people kind of wanting to be super respectful. Mm. And then it kind of getting blown up a bit out of proportion. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, I think it was being managed perfectly well at a local level, you know, Mm -hmm. like, like, you know, at a local level, you know, women don't want to be playing didgeridoo in public. Yeah. Because it's not what, you know, it's not law, it's not what they're, you know, they, they have a different role. Yeah. And that was being managed okay, but it's when it kind of explodes out into the world of internet that mm. things went kind of a bit, yeah, right. a bit crazy around that. So, so did they get concerned up in the top end as far as like, you know, yeah. if they're seeing, I don't know, mm. people doing didgeridoo yeah. healings in Canada or, or whatever, do, do they kind of go, oh... I, this is not right. Well, yeah, some people... Uh, uh, Murray Gard wrote an article about that um, with people from Manangrida who just thought it was absolutely ridiculous, the, the kind of mass didgeridoo choirs and the whole New Age kind of thing about didgeridoos that yeah. there was at that time. So, so there was that kind of reaction from some people, but most people just couldn't care less. Yeah, so, yeah. so what, like, <laughs> what, when you say ridiculous, like ridiculous in a way of... Uh, you know, like sort of laughable or ridiculous as like, you know, you're, you know, desecrating our, uh, or you're, no, you know, taking our culture out of context. they think it's like you just don't understand. Yeah. You don't understand and it's not worth our while to even try and begin yeah. to explain it to you because you don't know how to hear what we're saying. Yeah. That's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I'm, I'm aware that, you know, I mean, I certainly... You know, I live in Sydney and I know that there are some um, senior people in Sydney who don't want this, you know, don't want women to have anything to say about didgeridoo, so mm. I don't want to say too much more about it. Yeah, so like, <laughs> so you, would you have copped backlash about like writing about, yeah, this um, hot topic? Yeah, well, in the sense that, yeah, I've, I've been, not so much me, personally been, no, I wouldn't say that I personally have been, not from any of the people that I work with anyway, but it's more that, you know, it's like people latch on to things and then, you know, misinterpret or sometimes just mistranscribe things. So, mm. uh, so there's been, yeah, there's been a bit of debate about it, 
with people that I don't know. Yeah. So look, you know, I, I just, I guess the main thing I want to say about that is, I think the facts speak for themselves at one level, but at another level, we've got to recognise that we're speaking in a in a sort of public sphere mm. that likes to sort of take things and run with them sometimes. Yeah. That that um, you know, I'm. I'm not worried about it, but I just, you know, don't want to make too big a deal out of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then what prompted you to write about it? Do you, did you yeah. feel that the need yeah. to, to clear the air about what yeah. uh, all this? Well, I just thought, I, I just wanted to put on the record what the, the actual, the evidence that was there was against the new age idea about it. Mm. That's what, I, oh, that's all I wanted to do. So, uh, yeah, like, yeah. Uh, just to clarify, yeah. against the new age idea that this, uh, you know, was a, a potential, like, healing thing, yeah. or, or this was uh, something that was, you know, uh, completely off-limits outside of Aboriginal ceremony? Yeah. Um, no, it was more to do with the, with the kind of... Oh, look... You'd have to go back and have a look at yeah, that, yeah, that no. article to see exactly what it was that prompted yep. me to yeah, write it. I think enough. somebody asked me to write it, actually, because someone, uh, I think it was probably a conversation like this, and I said, well, actually, you know, there's plenty of evidence of mm. women sort of not being too worried about handling didgeridoos. Yeah, yeah. And, and then someone said, well, why don't you write about it? And so I somehow, somehow let myself be persuaded yeah. to write about it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I find it interesting. Like uh, some yeah. people I've talked yeah. to, and you know, say, "Oh no, no, yeah, women shouldn't touch it. Yeah, yeah it'll make them pregnant." Yeah. And then someone else, you know, goes, "Oh no, you shouldn't touch it. It'll make you infertile." And so, yeah. oh, okay, well, yeah. which which yeah. one might it be? But yeah. oh well. But you know, I mean, I think the main thing is to be respectful and not to make people that you're with feel uncomfortable in any way. You know, I mean, I'm. Um, you know, if me, at, at the same time, you know, I think I've got to be true to what, to, to what I know. Mm. So, you know, if somebody tells me something that um, goes past a certain point, I'm going to say something, right? Yeah, so, yeah. just to set the record straight. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I've got to ask because, um, yeah, I guess like here we are, yeah, like yeah. me from, you know, like born and raised in Sydney, um, and I guess you, you know, say a, a non-Aboriginal uh, woman, uh, you know, talking about didgeridoo. I could imagine that uh, you know some people listening to this will be, you know, be like, oh, who, you know, who are they to be, you know, speaking on this, and um, and even the fact of, um, you know, the fact that I'm, you know, asking you questions about Aboriginal culture, that. Um, and you know, like, you know, f fair enough from my you know, mm. perspective, you know a lot more about uh, you know traditional culture in uh, in other parts of the country that um, that I know about, and I'm valuing uh, your um, uh, your perspective. Um, but you know, for the people who are you know who are thinking, you know, who is this you know, white woman to yeah. be, you know, speaking on uh, Aboriginal uh, subjects. Um, yeah, is there, is there something to, um, say, put their mind at ease or to be able to, uh, you know, give them understanding as to, 
um, uh, why your your thoughts and feelings or your um, uh, license in a way mm. to to have access to communities to you know pass on and share these recordings um, you know has um, has has merit and has uh, um, acceptability within mm. Aboriginal community to yeah. do what you do. Well, you know, <laughs> I don't think I don't think I can say any one thing that's going to set everybody's mind at ease. Yeah. You know, I mean, I don't think I've ever sort of set myself up as an authority on Aboriginal culture. I've set myself up as a, I suppose you know, somebody who's, who, who really values what Aboriginal culture has to offer to the world and, you know, to, and a real commitment to social action and social justice. Okay. And I think that, um, you know, I, I really, I, I've never knowingly <laughs> um, put stuff out there without there being you know, it being a kind of an agreement with, with the people that I've been working with. And, you know, I've got very good relationships with most of the people that I've ever worked with, yeah. uh, some, quite a few of whom are here. So, you know, I'm, I'm not making claims beyond my own experience. And, you know, I, I, I do feel like getting back to the idea about social justice, you know, I do feel angry that I grew up in a period of time when uh, really horrendous social engineering was going on all around me and I didn't know. And, uh, you know, I, I just feel like the truth-telling that needs to happen in Australia is, it's not just for the benefit of, you know, Aboriginal self-determination. I think it's really for the benefit of everybody in Australia that we kind of really confront who we are here and now, you know, that we're building those relationships on shared understandings and truth-telling. Uh, so I, you know, I think, the you know, the statement from the heart is something that I take very, very seriously. And I think that part of what I want to do is is kind of facilitate that truth telling about things that I know about from my own personal experience. So mm. that's kind of the frame that I guess I'm coming from. Yeah, yeah. nice. Mm. And um, so were you saying that there, you feel that there's you know, like uh, some value that Aboriginal uh, culture has to uh, 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 yeah. the rest of Australia well, in well, a way? Well, I mean, we're, we're all here. We're living on land, Aboriginal land. <laughs> you know, we're, like, I know a lot of people don't like that term, but I'm quoting from years of, of um, campaigning about this. Um, like, uh, what I mean is people might not like the term Aboriginal. Right, right now we're on Noongar land, mm. but wherever we are in Australia, we're on somebody's land. Yeah. Where, and that land has been enlivened and interacted with song through human activity for 
thousands and thousands of years and and you know we're all reaping the benefit of that and um, I think that that's you know I mean how can we move forward and how can we really yeah I mean how, how can we know who we are if we're kind of blanking out that horrible shameful history I think it's um I think it's, you know, something that I hope I've passed on to my own children and that I hope that my work helps to kind of contextualise for, for um, you know, generations of music students to come, you know. That's, that's kind of what contribution I feel I can make and it's only because I've been fortunate enough to, to sort of have been led by pretty much total serendipity into this lifetime of engagement with, with, with some you know, really wonderful musicians who taught me such a lot and who, um, you know, I, I really feel like, you know, there's, there's an ongoing debt of gratitude that I've got, got for that. But, you know, by extension, we've all got an incredible debt of gratitude to that. You know, whoever we are, wherever we, how, why, whatever means we've come here, that's really valuable. Yeah. And that would um, that would be a great way to finish the podcast. <laughs> but I'll, I'll, if I can keep you for another ten minutes. Sure. Um, okay. Yeah. Uh, we got time. Yeah. So I I'm quite curious because I'm trying to find find ways to piece together what would have been the the musical culture and, mm. uh, and, and the sounds and the, and the styles that would have been in the southeast, uh, mm. you know, being in Melbourne, yeah. uh, you haven't, uh, well, doing some work with communities mm. there and, and yeah. trying to do stuff uh, up, you know, mm. in, in Walgett for the mob up there, yeah. like writing some mm. new songs and being able to, mm. you know, um, bring back mm. some of what would have been there. <laughs> um, I'm trying to understand what are the similarities and the, the differences mm. uh, mm. across the country yeah. in, in regards to Aboriginal music? Yeah. And the traditional stuff, you mean? Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, you know, I guess there's you know some of the places today where they have more of an unbroken connection to culture mm. and. And you get to hear these songs, uh, you know, as they mm. as they would have been sung you know, mm. uh, hundreds of years ago, perhaps. Yeah. Um, yeah. What, what do you find mm. as um, are, are there particular things that might say unify mm. uh, Central Desert music with the with the mm. top end? Yeah. Yeah. I, okay. I mean, I think you can say certain things about traditional culture that that would be unifying, but I also think that. You know, some of those things that kind of come out of that really, really long history, they're things that have sprung up quite recently, but they've come up out of that, right? So some of the songs, you know, most of the public songs are ones that have been composed quite recently. So like within living memory. Mm, okay. So there's a lot of stuff that's actually in traditional styles that is, you know, that are kind of you know, new creations that emerged out of new situations, new encounters. And to my mind, you know, the creativity that people like you are putting in right now on the foundations of, of that stuff, like 
you know, I could say, well, you know, they didn't traditionally use didgeridoo in New South Wales, which, as far as I understand, is the case. However, there are some bloody good didgeridoo players in New South Wales, and that's that's how they're, you know, I mean, that's that's something that has come into New South Wales in quite recent history, but it's, you know, important. It's part of how people make identity. So I don't want to be kind of saying there's one right way of doing things, and, you know. I think the, the messages that are in the, the language of the songs, I mean, one thing that you can say across the whole country is that song is the most important thing. Like, it's not really, you know, instrumental choruses of didgeridoos definitely <laughs> were definitely not a kind of established genre. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, um, so, you know, I mean, you've got to think about how the, the music is adapted to the country and how the ways that the, the, the things that the, that the songs are about are, re, re, you know, reacting to the cry of the crow, the wind in the trees, you know, all these things that are around us right now, if we just listen to it. Um, in a face-to-face -face situation, that's what, that's what we're hearing, but we're also hearing people speaking English over there. Mm. Um, and that's kind of part of what's the reality today. So I think, you know, putting stuff into, having, making songs in English, using whatever kind of instrumentation turns you on is kind of, you know, totally in keeping with what I understand to be the, the way that music has emerged from people mm. living in this country for 65,000 plus, plus, plus years, right? Yeah, yeah. So I'm not kind of in any way wanting to say that's there's anything wrong with kind of just using what's at hand because the important thing is creating stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, but having said that, there are certain things that you can say that kind of give you insights into um, into kind of cultural groupings and all that kind of thing. Yes, I'll see you there. Cool. <laughs> oh, that was uh, Miff Turpin just walking yeah, past. that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Trying to drag us away to dinner. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, so, so there are, you know, I think especially the messages that are in the words, because the songs are what's really important. Mm -hmm. And so I know there's a lot of really important work that's going on with, with language revival yep. revitalisation in New South Wales. And, uh, you know, I think the work that people like Pete Williams are doing is just brilliant, you know, just kind of creating... It, it's a bit like those young women from that ingredient, you know, they're kind of making a song tradition from scratch. Yeah. Um, that's, that's going to, you know, it'll, it'll, things will, things will happen. Um, but so the messages that are in the songs, I think, uh, you know, that's something I think is really worth putting research into. Um, there are certain things like, you know, the struck, you can kind of, from the structures of those recorded songs, even though you can't necessarily see what the dance was, you can kind of figure stuff out from contextual information. And mm -hmm. so I understand that it's not an area I've done research in, but I have read, you know, various things um, like Tamsin Donaldson and Margaret Gummo. One 
familiar with their work that they did back in the sort of 70s and 80s um, and afterwards. Um, and I know that's being built on. So there are certain characteristics in the way that songs are put together in New South Wales that, that seems to be like a whole East Coast characteristic way okay. of putting songs together. Yep. So it seems to be like, you know, two parts and, you know, there's repeating text in one part and then it moves into another part which seems to be associated with the dancing, you know, where dancing comes in and out or whatever, yeah, right. that kind of thing. Um, and that style seems to go right across southern part of um, South Australia and even into some of those Noongar songs that, that um, Clint's mob is singing. You know, I can kind of see that they're kind of, they're very different content, they're very different in all sorts of other ways, but you know, they're more like New South Wales type songs than they are like Central Australian type songs. Yeah, right. Yeah, so in Central Australia you've got that sort of cycle that's really, really important. Mm -hmm. And um, and that's what you hear in lots and lots of songs there, including ones people were talking about today. Kimberley's similar. And then on top in where you've got instruments, then there's sort of periods where, you know, there's didgeridoos and clapsticks while people are dancing and then singing and then more didgeridoo and clapsticks while people are dancing. So how the dancing kind of gets integrated. The dancing's always got to be part of it. That's the other thing, you know. I mean, we have the word music in English that kind of has quite a constrained meaning, right? Mm -hmm. It's kind of you know, really focused on sound and stuff, but actually the boundaries of what is music are really different in every society. Yeah. And uh, so really um, there's a music cognition type person called Ian Cross in England and he's talked about the kind of you know evidence for music having been an important thing in human evolution in general like across the whole world because every known society has music right mm. um, well what we call music right but the boundaries of what is music is actually probably better to say music and dance you know we have to yeah. say it in two words in English but um, in a lot of languages including some Australian languages it's one word for music and dance all right so they'll be like yeah. inma yeah inma. Uh, and yeah. so I mm. oh know does does um mm. uh, manake does that yeah manake uh, similar like cover that. Yeah. yeah okay yeah so bungal I think oh bungal yeah yeah. Mm. yeah so so yeah there's that that sort of idea that that it's you know it's not just something you listen to it's something you interact with you know <laughs> so I think that's something that's pretty, pretty much, as, as I understand it, something that's right across the whole continent. Okay, so yeah. so there aren't so many of those uh, mm. those genres that are just yeah. purely music, like uh, like I guess jubby, yeah. yeah, jubby, yeah, yeah. So, that, so yeah. that's not uh, that common outside of um, well, yeah. uh, Pilbara, and I don't know. I mean, there, there, it may be that. I mean, there's there's like, I think in every every sort of musical society that I know, there's lots of different types of things. Like, mm. So they also have other dance songs, right? Yeah. Um, so it seems like, you know, Jabi was something that was kind of, you know, not necessarily associated with dancing. Yeah. But that's, um, 
And I'm sure there are other songs. I, I mean, I've heard about other songs that are sort of more private songs that people just sing to themselves. Presumably that's not a dance song. Yeah. But, um, so I'm not saying that all genres would be dance, but I'm saying that there yeah. would be dancing yeah, something attached in association. Yeah. And, and not just dancing, but other, other activities associated with it. And of course, so to my mind, music isn't just what we hear or what we can write down if we've got certain sorts of training on a page. That's, that's what we tend to think of as music. If you do music at school, you learn you know, notation and that's what the music really is and stuff. But actually, to my mind, music is everything that surrounds, that it enables that sound to be produced. So, right. you know, the, the trust, the cultural agreements, the, the um, you know, ceremonial occasions, the, the kind of generations of protocols having been developed, that's all music. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah wow. <laughs> now I'm just trying to, or, or, I know, just put it in some kind of context to what I'm familiar with yeah. in regards to there are times that you know I might pull out a guitar and and it might be just not the right you know time or place and mm. and uh, nothing you know much might come of it. But then th there are other times when uh, things are right and it might be I don't know whether you call it you know culturally um, mm -hmm. appropriate. There's uh, you know the the right um, you know the, the right people, the right you know situation. Then some m some kind of magic happens, which yeah. is which is beyond just the the song and the music on, on its own. No matter, yeah. I don't know is that mm. is that a fair yeah. Yeah. assessment? Well, like these two crows coming up just now, mm. you know, and that pigeon over there. A couple of pigeons, a couple of crows. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and uh, I'll, I'll let you go because I guess we've got to get ready for dinner. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm just wondering, is there, um, yeah, is there anything else that is worth, um, worth mentioning for anyone like myself who is looking to be able to reclaim, you know, some, uh, you know, language and culture and be able to uh, share that with um, not only the, their own community but beyond? Mm. Well, you know... I guess the thing is, it's not something that one person can do by themselves. So, you know, community is really important. The community that we've been making here of people sharing how to do stuff, you know, these wonderful examples that we've had from some of the people who've been in the symposium this time. I mean, you know, finding ways to be with those archival recordings um, if that's what you, if that's the way that you want to go, you know, there's a lot of expertise about how to how things that you can do to enliven them and to bring them into current practice. So, so I think that's you know you don't need to be overly kind of worried about the past having been perfect and the present being somehow lacking. I think it's yeah. all, you know, it's all part of a continuum, you know. We're here because our ancestors kind of lucked into a particular situation. <laughs> and, and, you know, by some miracle of serendipity, we've come to be sitting here having this lovely conversation for the last 
hour and a half, but you know, this moment is just as full and replete as past moments. And, and you know, the, I really believe that that, you know, kind of spark of creativity is, is still, still kind of alive. The country's still here, you know, listen to, to, to the things that kind of make you feel powerful. And, and it, it'll come if that's what you want.